CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by LexisNexis Litigation Solutions. Welcome to CIO Talk Radio with your host, Sunjog All. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sunjog All. Good morning and welcome to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Today's topic is security challenges in education today. And our guests for today's show are David Sherry, who is the CISO, which is Chief Information Security Officer with Brown University. Good morning, David. How are you? Good morning, Sanjog. I'm doing fine. Hope you are as well. Oh, I could not be doing better. We just spoke before the show started that we have a lovely sunny morning in Chicago. So how's, how, how are things there? Are you in a gloomy mood or are you all elated with the weather? Well, I'm in a good mood, but the weather outside is dreary and rainy. I'll try to overcome that. <laughs> all right. And we also have Joshua Beeman, who is the Chief Information Security Officer with the University of Pennsylvania. Good morning, Josh. How are you? Good morning, Sanjay. Good morning, David. Good morning, Josh. So, so is fall treating you good? Uh, yes, yes, it's it's great weather here. All right. So, you know, um, while we all talk about weather all day long and it changes, but at the same time when we are talking about education, we want to ensure that whatever the platforms that we are building and as an organization or as a, as a business for profit or not for profit, in any case, the people who we are trying to strengthen, build a you know, next generation workforce, uh, and leaders, we build a strong, uh, secure environment where these people can go about getting the education and people who impart, they're also safe and secure. With all that said, David, let's start with you. Across the board, there is actually a rising concern over campus crime and safety. And when we are talking about everything going online, that is electronic age that we have, and the student interaction is also being preferred to be done online, what kind of risks that we are further increasing and are introducing? Hmm. Very good question to start off with, Sunjog. Uh, there's obviously many facets of that that we can go into. There's, there's personal safety uh, and personal dangers when students are interacting online and putting their uh, personal lives online uh, for most of the world to see. But there's also the risk to the academic process and to the institution itself. Uh, when we have things online, um, it introduces academic dishonesty and plagiarism and copyright uh, a little bit easier than it was in the past. There's also the concerns over, say, the loss of intellectual property or research protection and uh, in the era of the cloud with mobile devices and bring-your-own device, or as we say in higher education, bring-your-own devices. Um, and the students and faculties need to have data access anywhere, anytime, on any device. It obviously opens up uh, security loopholes and security challenges that we didn't see as you know, short as five years ago. No, so do you think, and this is a question for you, Josh, do you think this is a sudden shift because we are trying to go online, or is it basically while you're trying to morph the business to remain sustainable and profitable, this is coming as not a fringe benefit, but as, as an add-on risk, which was not warranted? Right, right. I mean, I, I think it's, well, you know, it's important to point out that, right, the security issues that, that David is describing and that you're describing, these occur across the board, right? They're not just happening in higher ed. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, I don't think that, that these broader problems are necessarily new. Um, 
things like, you know, poor judgment or cheating or bullying. But the means by which they're occurring have changed. Uh, and sometimes the problems happen so fast and with such widespread effects and permanence that the impact is a lot more profound than it's been previously. When I was in college, uh, you know, 20 plus years ago, a student could make mistakes and they would probably be forgotten the next morning. Uh, today, a student could find an unflattering photo or video of themselves go viral the same night uh, because of some, some lapse in judgment. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. we always, yeah, go ahead. Dave. I was just going to add and another interesting shift is just the way we look at information overall. I'm going to um, tack on to what Jasper said about when we were in college. I used to get my grades by visiting the professor's office and looking up my social security number that was posted on his door. So, uh, you know, things have changed rapidly, um, and the way we look at protection and the way we look at information certainly has changed dramatically as well. Now, we always take pride as uh, information security officers or, in fact, anyone in technology to be proactive and, and have the capability to really sniff and sense uh, any any dangers that we might be uh, coming across, but is it truly the case when it comes to security, whether in person and or information based security? Josh, uh, I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question? Now I'm seeing what we're saying is: Are we able to proactively sense the danger when it comes to the kind of uh, security issues that we are seeing in education, especially? when we are dealing with individuals who may not be as mature as an adult that you'll expect in a workforce? I I mean, I think in general, in general terms, yes, we can anticipate the certain types of issues, right, whether that's, um, you know, loss of judgment or or, or fraud or theft, the sort of same kinds of problems we see not uh, connected with technology. Um, But at the same time, individual attacks, right, the the sort of very specific nature of the technical attacks that we're seeing are, are changing on a daily basis. David, do you think your typical day goes about fighting fires and or plugging holes which may have been introduced, which surprised and or shocked the management uh, in the areas of security, or you get some time to do some daydreaming where you can proactively think about what could happen next and also have the resources to plug those holes beforehand? Uh, well, first of all, there's no such thing as a typical day or an ordinary day. I guess my ordinary day is that I never know at one day to the next what my day is going to entail. And I think, Sanjog, it's a little bit of both. Um, I think we have to be have spend some of our time in the strategic realm, whether it's uh, business risk or risk assessments or working with the risk management committees, uh, assessing what's going to happen with uh, the upcoming technology or even business continuity, disaster recovery, whether we're going to get a snowstorm in the next few days or whether we have a hurricane coming up the coast. So there's always that strategic thinking. Certainly there's tactical uh, roles and responsibilities that have to go on on a daily basis. Some of it includes firefighting uh, or, you know, our log management solutions are always telling us things uh, that we need to look into, uh, maybe a compromised machine, um, maybe a spam outbreak. We all certainly have that. I'm sitting back and thinking that that's kind of a luxury during the regular normal business day. I have to do that early in the morning or later at night or in conversations with my friend Josh and other peers. We we kind of do our uh, wishful thinking together to find out who's doing what right, who's doing things that may be able to be uh, improved upon, and how we can work together as a security profession and a security discipline to you know, make the next strategic moves. Josh, in your world, how do you define security, the scope of security for that matter? Because you've got various entities connected in the ecosystem. It could be the management, the faculty, staff, 
students, even their parents and or anyone who is near and dear to them who are concerned about security. And if there is at all a breach, then you feel that you are on the spotlight. So what, what, do you, what do you do to draw a circle around all possible things related to security and work within that cocoon, if you will? Sure. Um, I mean, I think every institution is probably different. Um, at Penn, we're extremely decentralized. So we've got 12 different schools. You, you might be familiar with the Wharton Business School, the Annenberg School of Communications, et cetera, et cetera. And, and for us, each one of those 12 schools is independently responsible for ensuring that its sort of unique IT needs are met in the way that suits the school the best. So the result is that each school could could vary in their expectations from faculty or from staff or from students or their parents about the degree of security literacy or competency that they require. But, but what I think is true for all, all 12 schools, um, and probably, you know, regardless of institution, is the realization that we're increasingly in an age where personal responsibility uh, often trumps some kind of centralized control. And what I mean by that is that a, a user could invoke a, I don't know, you know, a high-performance cluster at Amazon with a couple of clicks of a mouse in a second, um, or, or they could download huge chunks of data onto a personal device, a small personal device that's, that's easily lost um, just by signing up for some, some free service. And so the, the user can do all this without the help uh, or knowledge, frankly, of the local IT department. Um, and so, you know, in situations like this, the, the, the greatest risk we're facing is ourselves. Um, I think that given all those risks, uh, the ones that David's already talked about, BYOD or bring your own device, um, self-service cloud computing, you know, our goal is we've got to be able to provide secure, reasonable alternatives. Um, we've got to have policy and guidance that is clear and concise so people actually understand what we want them to do. And we've got to have strategic layered security controls that don't counteract our mission, which is, you know, for Penn, eminence in teaching, research, and service. Dave, David, where do you think the actual security breaches originate from? Is it truly the mindset of those individuals who are expected to uh, observe whatever has been suggested as a set of guidelines, what to, uh, you know, do or not to do? Or is it primarily can be attributed to the effort, the resources, the planning that we do around security management in an education setting? Hmm. That's a that's a one-hour question itself, uh, Sunjog. But I'm going to echo what uh, Josh said: is that every school, while we uh, at the end of the day, we're there for teaching and research and learning. Uh, every school is a little bit different, and the bigger schools, the public schools versus private, community college versus uh, research institutions, all have it a little bit different. So I can speak from my role here at Brown University. We have security events across the board. It's because of someone answering a phishing email. Even though we work very hard at our awareness efforts, uh, some people just fall for it, a well-crafted one. Certainly we have, because of decentralized areas, we have compromises that occur because people don't follow a standard build or um, they throw up a server that is, uh, has outdated protection without notifying the network group. Um, and we work very hard at trying to get the word out about um, 
decentralizing things is not a not a bad thing. We want to be a compelling option to them. We don't tell them that they have to come under the centralized management, but we want to uh, certainly support them in their efforts to do what they need to do to get the teaching and the research and the learning done. And um, my tactic here is always when any group comes, whether it's students, faculty, staff, we've worked with alumni, we've worked with donors, if they come with us with a solution that they're looking for or an idea that they have, my first blush is never to say no. We, I always say, yeah, we can get that done, but it's going to cost you some money, cost you some time, cost you some resources, and then leave the decision up to them as to whether they want to pursue it from a secure manner, or that's when we have to step in and say, no, that can't be done because it brings too much risk to the university. Josh, are there any weakest links, if you will, which you can outright uh, identify, whether it is your organization, uh, institutions, or across the board? Uh, I mean, no, I think I would, you know, re just re return to the comment that I made before about um, being in an age of personal responsibility. I mean, I, I really think that IT organizations um, have to be more diligent than ever in, in educating users about the power that they now have uh, to bypass any security control that, that we could implement. Dave, how much immunity does a CISO have in an education setting where we know that there are constituents who are impacting security and overall vulnerability of the organization? Hmm. I don't know if uh, we can ever have complete 100% immunity, but it's our responsibility to make sure that we're identifying the risks, identifying that the university is never going to be 100% secure uh, in a decentralized and as going with what Josh says, an era of personal responsibility. So we need to maintain to the executives at the university uh, all the methods and processes and governance that we're putting in to keep the university as low risk tolerance as we possibly can and as secure as we possibly can and preparing them that something can go wrong. And on top of that, having obviously a very robust, scalable, well-practiced incident response process so that when something does happen, we can shut it down quickly and show, uh, show our worth um, on quickly mitigating what the danger that has come in. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back, listeners. And uh, Josh, when we come back, would like to compare educational institution with a business, an actual uh, profit-making organization which does not have such external constituents. What incremental measures do you take in order to secure the fort? Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Take control of e-discovery with flexible integrated solutions designed for early data assessment, processing, document review, and litigation presentation. LexisNexis offers comprehensive solutions that work together as well as with other industry-leading tools to help you maintain a seamless chain of custody throughout discovery. Most of these solutions can be offered in a hosted environment with access to fully customizable support resources dedicated to your success. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sun Joke All. So, uh, Josh, coming back here, uh, let's compare business setting and educational uh, institution setting, and let's see where would you do things which are incrementally more complex and are more stringent and or more flexible, for that matter, in order to meet the security needs for uh, that that organization that you run. Well, Sanjay, I mean, I think. I think it's a cliche, but um, but but policy is really the foundation of information security, um, and good policy, uh, you know, the 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 rules that tell us sort of what we can and can't do in our organization uh, to be effective, derive directly from our mission. So, I mean, I think if you want to talk about the differences between business and higher ed, what you have to do is look at the differences in their mission. As, as, as I think both David and I alluded to earlier, uh, the missions of our organization relate to teaching, to research, and to service. Um, and, and those are not um, specifically the, the goals of business. So, uh, you know, the technologies themselves that we have at our disposal uh, are the same, um, but but I think that the ways that we implement them and have to think about implementing them are different. So, you know, I like to joke that when it comes to, to BYOD, this is like one space where higher education has been in the forefront for decades because every, you know, this and this is an issue, right, that businesses are struggling with now uh, as their employees are bringing smartphones and other personal devices into the workplace. But if you work at, a, at an institute of higher learning every fall for the last, like, 20-plus years, um, Thousands of new students have been showing up with personal computers and smartphones and gaming devices and who knows what else, you know, expecting um, a secure, reliable network, expecting technical support um, for what is, you know, undoubtedly a very diverse set of operating systems and applications. Um, so I think to that extent, while, while the technologies are the same, the rules that we put in place um, have to reflect the realities of our, um, of our missions. And, and, and to that degree, I think... Um, you know, in, in some ways, education, it comes back to education and influence uh, rather than explicit control uh, in a place where our primary mission is about enhancing collaboration uh, and openness between, between organizations. So would you say, David, this is for you. Do you think that we will have to uh, balance between risks and benefit based on what Josh just mentioned, that because we have to impart education and because we have to have a collaborative environment, we could potentially not exactly ignore, but live with a certain amount of risk in the interest of what would what this collaboration would bring to us? Absolutely. Every decision we make is, benefit, is uh, looking at the risks and the benefits um, and trying to balance that. Uh, certainly something's a high risk and we have to take away some of the access to it. You know, if it's uh, we have HIPAA data or we have uh, research protection data, human subject data, that is extremely high risk and we have to put high security controls on it. But if we're talking about the residential network where the students come in, as Josh said, with multiple devices and Apple TV and gaming stations, wireless routers, we let, let them, the risk is a little bit lower there because they're separated from our network and we can 
we can allow them to do some more things. And going along with what Josh said about having good policy, we, we look at it here that there's kind of three concentric circles. The biggest one is what people can do. The smaller one inside is what people may do, and then in the middle part is the smallest one is what people must do. And the, the difference between that must circle and the may circle, that's where the policy comes into place. You know, must is a mandate. We must protect HIPAA data. That's, there's just no questions about that. It needs to be centralized, and it needs to be mandated and assessed periodically and regularly. It's the one, the things that people may do, but there may be something, you know, a, a risk to it or some kind of regulation that we need to follow, and that's where the policy comes into place, and, and we seem to focus on that uh, more than anything else. We, we think we have a good handle on the must, but it's the may. And I came out of financial services before I was in higher ed, and when I was in financial services as the security officer, I had the ability to say, thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do that. And I come into higher ed, and it's like jumping into the wild, wild west, which makes my job so fulfilling and so much fun, but it's also more challenging trying to get the balance of you know where the risk is to the university, where the risk is to the certain department, faculty member, or student, and making sure at the end of the day that the university is the one that is uh, accepting the risk tolerance and protecting what we need to. Now, and, with know, that said, said I, I, yeah, correct. Yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, I think that you know, as as we make these calculations, I think that we can uh, do an equivalent job to, to balance risk. Um, we just have to uh, think of our constituents and figure out ways uh, to, to provide those security controls that are meaningful to our populations. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if we're talking about um, free services um, or BYOD, we've got to figure out a way, right, to, to provide reasonable alternatives or secure alternatives um, and to inform people about the policies that we have. Uh, I, I truly believe that, that people want to do the right thing uh, on our campus. We've just got to sort of enable them to do so. Absolutely agree. Now, Josh, the fact we, we spoke about the setting the policies, so do you think if you set the right policy, uh, is that enough? Or if you get it adopted by whatever means that you get it adopted, is that's where you are measured for, uh, you know, in terms of your success in making sure that you created a secure environment. And if you do try to go and implement those policies or get that policy adopted, is that done in the same authoritative approach or, or saying that if you don't do it, then X, Y, Z would happen, so it's almost like a threat? Do you think the, the community, the student community specifically, respond very well to that? No, no. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think people respond to threats. Um, you know, the problems that we typically see stem from a lack of education or a lack of understanding about the technologies or university policies. Threats are not going to help uh, a student system. They're not going to help solve you know a problem with a student system that's been compromised because of some application or operating system vulnerability. Education is going to help that. Education coupled with you know, effective detection with automated security controls. Uh, these things are sort of far more practical and effective than than some kind of authoritarian sort of threat about what happens if, if you don't do something. So, David, I'm a parent, and I'm sure many of the listeners are too, and I'm not concerned truly that if my son's or daughter's um, computer gets hacked, I'm more concerned about the abuse that could happen online and using online resources and or on campus. With that said, the security policy itself may not help some sort of a sniffing, some sort of a intervention in terms of if the semantics of what is being exchanged in terms of collaboration 
is not looked at closely, then a lot of things could, uh, people could get away with doing something which is wrong and which in a way is breaching the security that you were very, you were supposed to safeguard. Hmm. What do you do about that? Yeah, well, we certainly can't uh, be sniffing or doing log management on everything that's being shared throughout a university that, you know, is quickly be ramping up, getting bigger with online courses and global presence. And a lot of it still goes back to uh, the awareness and, and the policies that we have to um, have to put out and raise the awareness level amongst our constituents. I do speak with a lot of parents. I, one of the times of the year that I really enjoy is the beginning of the new academic year where the freshmen show up with their parents. And I listen to the parents' concerns about online safety and uh, what resources they can get access to, what they shouldn't, you know, how can we respond to them quickly. And we do talk about copyright and plagiarism because in an area of right-clicking and copying, um, you know, the academic integrity of, of the institution can be at harm when students fall prey to something like that. And uh, going back a little bit to how we get this out, and certainly don't want to threaten people, uh, two of the key things I think that have been successful in any security stop that I've been on is uh, persuasion and influence uh, more than threats is, you know, telling them it's the right thing for the institution or the right thing for the enterprise to do it such and such a way and that I'm here to help them. I, I tell them I'm not here to uh, disable or stop any university business. I'm here to securely enable it to make sure that uh, we're going to go forward. Brown is going to be celebrating its 250th anniversary in two years, and I tell them that I want it to go on for another 250 years, and certainly having a secure environment, doing the right thing, and making sure that we don't have any compromises that are going to stop kids and their parents from applying here is certainly one of the key things that I have to be focusing on. Josh, uh, you spoke about policy making and, of course, uh, implementing it. Where does this policy originate from? Do we actually listen to the students and or parents and other constituents and then make this policy? Or is it more of an ivory tower top-down approach to what should be working if we were to make it secure? Because even that definition of what is secure may be morphing under your feet as you go about implementing and even envisioning such policies. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, policy, um, you know, something that may be dry to many people um, is something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, it's such a valuable tool for us uh, in getting our jobs done. You know, it, it is, I believe, one of the most collaborative processes that I work in, um, uh, and, and it takes input from, from everywhere. Uh, we take input from peers. We take input from IT people, from non-IT people, from users, from from family. Uh, you know, we've got to respect, as as David alluded to earlier, in, in, in talking about the musts. There are certain things that are simply um, not optional, right? So we've got to pay attention to, to regulatory spaces and, and to compliance requirements. Um, but we've also got. Um, requirements that are unique to an individual organization or requirements that are unique to the sort of character of our institution, to an institution like Penn. And we've got to reflect all of that in, in policy. I heard a Supreme uh, Court judge talking about uh, the law once, and he said that the most dangerous kind of law was one that people willfully did not follow. And I really think about that a lot when I'm crafting policy. Um, we try, and I, again, I think David alludes to this as well, is we try very, very hard to create policy that is reasonable and meaningful for people while setting out the expectations um, that are necessary with regards to security and securing the data um, and the digital assets of our university. 
So, Josh, suppose you built a policy and while you made your best effort, but still few components of the same don't fly and they are not getting adopted. Once you have already uh, implemented it, it would be kind of interesting for you to revoke it or revoke pieces of it because it's not working. How do you manage this expectation setting? And in case you have to revoke certain things, how do you reset those expectations? Right, right. I mean, it should be an iterative process, right? Um, everyone's policy process is different. I can talk about ours at Penn. One of the ways that we try and avoid uh, having to revoke something, and that doesn't mean that such things don't happen, but it can be confusing uh, to organizations and to the constituents when that happens. Policy isn't the most exciting thing for people, so you really do want to try and get it out and get it clear the first time out. One of the ways that we uh, combat that is we have uh, a public review period where we actually sort of shop draft policy around in advance, so we give people a chance to react to it. And the other way that you sort of hopefully um, sidestep that issue is um, you, you have enough people at the table the first round in that you're really getting a diverse set of viewpoints. Um, but I will say, you know, the technology changes. We, we've seen policy um, that, that sets out requirements uh, for, for technological things that don't exist anymore, um, and, and you've got to update that policy. It's got to be a, a living, breathing thing, or it stops being meaningful to people. So, David, when we build, um, you know, our, our course curriculum and or different programs, we keep the customer in mind, which is the student and what the world, you know, looks outside in terms of what's going to be more valuable for an individual to put on their resume. But when we are talking about security, do we really keep that customer in mind in terms of what they want? Because typically the adoption happens bottom up. Before you answer this question, let's take a quick break. We will come back and explore. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Take control of e-discovery with flexible, integrated solutions designed for early data assessment, processing, document review, and litigation presentation. LexisNexis offers comprehensive solutions that work together as well as with other industry-leading tools to help you maintain a seamless chain of custody throughout discovery. Most of these solutions can be offered in a hosted environment with access to fully customizable support resources dedicated to your success. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Welcome back. So, uh, David, you had the question. The policies are being made uh, for other things or, or, you know, business models are made to serve the customer. But when it comes to security, how much of that is ivory tower versus how much of time did you actually include the customer, which is the student and or perhaps their parents, to make this happen because adoption happens bottom up? Mm. 
Well, ivory tower does not work, Sanjo. Uh, that would was proven long before I got here, and I quickly learned that that mandates from the top uh, usually just either get uh, comments of derision or just flat out de- denied or not even not even uh, followed. So our process follows very similar to what Josh described at Penn. That we talk to all the constituents, the alums, the corporation members, donors, students have a big role in any policy that. We put out the faculty, uh, have a big role in it as well. We do requests for comments. We do town hall sessions. We put it up as on our website for public review. So it, I was told when I got here to get a policy approved, it takes one year per page. And that has pretty much uh, held true in what I've seen over the past four years. And we certainly do keep the customer in mind. I, I take what the students say very, very seriously. We have a campus paper that is not shy and uh, voicing their concerns or their complaints about anything that goes on at campus, especially IT and, and security. So I certainly meet with student groups and focus groups to find out where the balance is. They understand that um, when they're on campus and maybe in the academic network and in the research network, it's, it gets a little bit more corporate than what they might want, but they have to understand that. But when they're in the campus network, the uh, residential network, they don't expect a corporate environment, nor should they. And we find the balance of what they need, what, what our firewall rules will be, maybe what uh, the bandwidth, maybe the protocols that we have to shut off and open up to make them happy. And um, certainly we do keep them in mind because they're the loudest voice. They're the ones paying the tuition and, and keeping the university going. So, Josh, the question for you is that while we all want to grow as a business and so does an educational institution, and then we want to innovate in that area, while we spoke about innovation from a technology standpoint, uh, where you're trying to bring BYOD and make it easier, and that's posing challenge, but besides that, what other innovations are actually, while may looking good in terms of bringing growth to the organization, but also are introducing risk? And what are you trying to do to manage the balance between growth and risk? Right. This, I, mean, I think this is just a great question um, because it, it really talks to some of the challenges that we're facing every day. Um, you know, I, I think just as you alluded, the, the landscape is really changing very, very quickly. So, I mean, you mentioned BYOD. Um, uh, online learning, someone mentioned earlier, this just continues to expand and evolve in our space um, with, with sort of profound impacts. Uh, cloud-based computing, I think I mentioned earlier, social media. I, you know, I, to talk about social media, for example, I, I, um, I have this uh, photograph that I, that I talk about all the time uh, in presentations. It was a photo that I saw uh, from a visit uh, of Katy Perry, the, the singer-actor, um, visiting Mark Zuckerberg's office at Facebook. And, and it, was, it was a shot of the inside of, of Mark Zuckerberg's office. And, and above the door, exiting the office, he had two signs. And one said, uh, move fast and break things. And the other said, done is better than perfect. And I, you know, I just, I love this. I think that these are the two messages that, that Zuckerberg wanted Facebook employees to take with them as they're leaving his office. And, and it's just a great example of how technologies that we embrace you know, in the case of social media, those other things that I talk about because they just have this amazing potential and capabilities to improve how we're fulfilling our mission. They also can have goals that are possibly totally misaligned with our own. Uh, you know, Facebook's mission is, is to connect people globally, but it's also to be the first uh, to market with new ideas. And those values at times are in conflict with uh, my university's values. Um, of privacy and security. So we've got, we've got to balance this potential 
with the risk. And, and I think that means being aware of these really innovative and transformative technologies um, and not being afraid to embrace them, frankly, but, but doing so de- deliberately um, and hopefully knowledgeably. So I'll, I'll give you just a brief example at Penn. Uh, you know, uh, for social media, that resulted in us publishing guidance on, on how to use social media safely uh, at work for faculty and staff. We also created a series of tips uh, for how to create a secure Facebook profile um, for everybody, for students, faculty, and staff. And then, of course, we promote the heck out of these tools, and hopefully, you know, we're, we're better securing an experience um, that people are excited about but not inhibiting or, or diluting the power of these, these technologies and, and their innovations. Does that make sense? It does. So, David, would love to get your input on this, too. So do you think that there is something in the horizon that you see where while whatever we are dealing with, this is going to get compounded? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think uh, the thing that we're dealing with now that has changed dramatically just in my short time here is what is the primary network? Uh, when I was here, it was wired, and there was wireless access in, in certain locations, but it's getting to the point where the wireless network is the primary network, and it's expected to be ubiquitous over the entire campus and even some of the surrounding areas where we have, Brown has uh, a, a footprint or an influence. And that certainly brings uh, a lot greater challenges um, with, you know, uh, compromises, man-in-the-middle attacks, uh, use of it by non-Brown people. Um, that's certainly changing the the balance of where we're going as we get less wired and and more wireless. And I agree with Josh that this is a challenge every day. Um, I'm not going to beat the BYOD. We've talked about that. Cloud with with Amazon services being able to spin up so so quickly. Sometimes they don't want to wait for the security or the central IT team to come up with a solution. Um, Certainly done is better than perfect is, is a great mantra for Facebook, but in a security world, we have to get pretty close to perfect when we roll something out, uh, knowing what the ramifications are if it's not correct. And uh, I've always told my staff and talk about it in public presentations that I think the security's uh, reputation is a game of shoots and ladders. And, you know, we fight our way up and go up the ladders as quick as we can when we have a good project. But, boy, if we have one minor slip-up, we go down that chute and we're starting all back over again right from the, right from the bottom. So uh, reputation management of the security team is, is paramount when we're making the balances of growth and risk, too. Do we speed a project up to get it in a little quicker and maybe have some issues that we have to hit downstream, or do we say, hey, we need an extra month to get this in correctly, and knowing that the university is going to benefit from that? Now, Josh, do you think what we are doing today, for the most part what we spoke today, somehow seems like it is confined to the campus environment? But we truly have a huge percentage of people who, while maybe joining an, org- uh, an educational institution for getting their degrees, but majority of the actual effort, collaboration, and you name it, might be happening from places outside of the campus, to what degree do you think a CISO of an educational institution be responsible and it will be able to take control of the security of that customer who's a student, even though that person is not physically present in front of their eyes? And do uh, yeah. you, are you willing to take the responsibility for that? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, I think that the scope of, of at least my responsibility is, is reasonably clear, and, and that is to protect Penn's digital assets. So the location of the users 
really is is not the most important thing. Um, and and if you know if if uh, institutions of higher learning continue to evolve and and move more and more content and resources online, uh, where the sort of brick and mortar school um, is is uh, ancillary or complementary to that. Um, that's just the way it is. In the same way that you know, I don't have the luxury of only worrying about attackers uh, or people who violate policy uh, that that are physically located on campus. I you know I, I I can't. I have to sort of also worry about protecting uh, anyone who's accessing any of our data anywhere. Now, David, you have a team, I'm assuming, which takes care of this number of uh, security issues and safeguard security for the educational institution and its students. What's your mandate? For your team, when a person from your team could get fired for not listening and or adhering to some of the mandates you have, let's inventory those. Hmm. Well, the my team uh, is very similar to Josh's mission: is that we are here to protect the university and the university's digital assets and even all information assets, uh, hard copy and digital. And my team has a threefold mission, and that's one to build a secure and robust security architecture, uh, which encompasses across the entire university, um, both centralized and decentralized. We also have a mission of being the experts in proactive subject matter expertise in all matters of security, so it's a forward-facing. The architecture may be the plumbing and the the people, things behind the scenes, but we also have a forward-facing mission that uh, we need to be the people to go to for um, life cycle of security projects and security expertise on upcoming projects. And then we also have the mission of uh, creating a culture of security awareness. And we take that mission extremely serious. Uh, I used to laugh and tell people that my my role in many ways is protecting the university from the world, but at the same time it's protecting the world from the university. And um, if I see IT staff, security staff, or anyone overstepping their bounds, not following our acceptable use policy or our student conduct or employee conduct policies and um, doing something wrong, we have to make an example of ourselves to show that we take our role serious um, and we're not going to just look the other way if someone oversteps their bounds and, and may do something outside of our security parameters. Josh, typically a good leader and or for that matter a great leader uh, has a vision which is used to make people do things versus threatening them that if you don't do, um, you know, something bad will happen to you. So what is the kind of vision that you are painting for not only your staff, but for the organization as a whole so that the people follow? And is there a vision? Is there a possibility for you to paint a vision given that the things are moving at such a warp speed? Uh well, I mean, I, I certainly do think it's possible uh, to paint a vision, e- even though, we, you know, we, we now live in a world where sort of technological advances are happening very, very quickly. Um, you know, I think leadership is a very interesting thing. I think people come to it from different places. Um, you know, w- one thing that I'm aware and observe works is that the kinds of people that I work with uh, in information security um, are really drawn to and motivated by um, some of the sort of rapid technological change and the challenges that we're talking about. These are people who are very uh, excited um, about the future, and they're very excited uh, about having a a positive impact on the future. Um, You know, I think uh, in terms of the broader picture of of how one motivates 
and, and leads people um, to to a security vision. I I think that it's you know really very much a question of understanding what motivates people, and having a good uh, handle around uh, the facts of your environment. So um, I, I feel that um, I've been very fortunate to have success uh, at Penn simply by talking to the various constituents in the schools and cost centers at Penn about what their needs are, but also to sort of understand the core mission of the university and then align the interests of people uh, with, with the long-term goals. And, and I, you know, David alluded to this earlier, but I cannot um, under, uh, underemphasize the importance of um, conversations with peers, um, conversations with subject matter experts about uh, where where the world is going and where security is going, it is a rapidly uh, developing field, and I think uh, you know one ha- when when one sort of uh, uh, identifies the the proper direction, then then one needs to build the proper enthusiasm to get there. Um, David, are there any concerns that have been explicitly expressed by the students and or parents or someone else who's also either a customer or an influencer? where you feel, you know what, I don't have a solution to this today. Mm. I think that happens a lot, Sanjog, but mainly it's because a student or a parent will come out of nowhere with a question that we haven't thought about. And one of what, the... what would be some of those things that you may be struggling with? I'm not saying that you have to you know, literally um, open up the vulnerabilities, but what are some of the things that people ask of you which you feel realistically cannot be delivered today or the technology and or the way the educational system works, you simply are not in a position to deliver. Hmm. Well, some some parents want access to systems or access to student data that is covered under FERPA. So by regulation mandates, we obviously cannot provide that without uh, stipulations from the students. We have a lot of, we have a very um, enthusiastic and talented school of computer science here. And sometimes the computer science students are always testing our limits and using uh, anonymizing proxies and Tor networks and um, possibly opening up ports and protocols that we feel are not necessary. So sometimes we have to push back on that and and circle around, talk to them, see what their needs are, and come up with more a secure solution. All right, let's take a quick break. Let's uh, come back. And, Josh, when we come back, we'll talk about the interesting area of budgets because typically security is seen as stepchild in most of the organizations. People think that you're selling fear, and thus it is not a mission-critical element of what we need to spend on. How do you deal with that at the same time having a mandate to secure the educational institution? Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Take control of e-discovery with flexible, integrated solutions designed for early data assessment, processing, document review, and litigation presentation. LexisNexis offers comprehensive solutions that work together as well as with other industry-leading tools to help you maintain a seamless chain of custody throughout discovery. Most of these solutions can be offered in a hosted environment with access to fully customizable support resources dedicated to your success. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network.
you are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, the business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Oh, all right. So when it comes to the budgets... Okay, um, so basically the budgets that we talk about in terms of the allocation of budgets uh, with respect to security, we've always seen that as um, you know a stepchild treatment when it comes to what dollars you need, what resources you need in order to making things happen. What do you think is the situation? Is that a hearsay or would you say you know something which there's some reality to it? Josh? Uh, uh, I... You know, I, I, look. First and foremost, I don't. I don't know anyone in the field that would ever say no uh, to more funding. Um, you know, I, I, at least at Penn, we're a not-for-profit institution. Um, you know, it's 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 a challenge always to to balance uh, limited resources. You know, and as we've been talking about for the last forty-five minutes or so, we live in a world where um, attacks are are constantly evolving. Um, but 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 I, I mean, I think. You know what's clear to me is is that Penn does view security as essential, um, and and is totally committed to protecting the information of of both the individuals and the constituents, but all, you know also the university at large. And and from my experience, that is the case uh, at my peer institutions as well. That that they understand the value of this. Um, you know that the devil's in the details. How how much money people are getting? I'm sure people would would always want more. All right. So do you think, David, this is a question for you. We have, can we make this statement confidently that while people want the world out of your group, which is to keep the, keep the educational institution and the students secure, you, you would, you would say that you got everything you need? Or would you, would, if, you, if I gave you this forum to, to appeal to your management to say, give me a million dollars more, I can show you what I can do. Mm, well, Would your answer be yes? We, yes, we're we're constantly doing that. I'm going to echo once again what Josh said that, you know, everything is constantly changing. The risks are changing and the risk profile is changing. So uh, all budgets are tight. We live in a national and global economy where people are asking us to do more with less. So we need to stamp, substantiate what our needs are and um, show institutional value uh, by writing strong business plans. So you can't use the fair uncertainty and doubt. Uh, security here at Brown is part of the overall risk management framework, so I do have a voice and I do have an audience where I can put forward what I need, uh, but it needs to be documented and substantiated of what the value is going to be. Some, sometimes it's hard to get an ROI on a, on a security project that if you put spend a lot of money and uh, resources and time and maybe FTE and professional services and then nothing goes wrong afterwards, you have to balance, you have to teach them that nothing went wrong because of what we did, and they don't think that we, they've wasted the university's resources by spending 
uh, a hefty lo- amount of money and then not having anything occur after it. So I think, uh, as I stated, it, having almost MBA-like thinking, have strong, strong business plans showing the value and having a three- to five-year vision of, of the overall security architecture, knowing that there could be changes as something occurs, um, is paramount. Now, Josh, we have seen that organizations put very strong policies and even there are people who are buying, but the very business process by which something is values created, whether it's education is imparted or other back end, uh, back office information systems or other, um, you know, work related items are conducted, it introduces vulnerability. Do you think as part of what you do, you also have influence and or control over how a business process is run and you can point fingers and other people will listen and actually spend the money, time and effort to fix it in order for you to meet your goals? Or do you find challenge there? Uh, you know, I, I would I would say that this is one area where I, I really and truly believe things have gotten better. Um, and in no small part due uh, to the increasing publicity and general public awareness about computer security. Um, at Penn, we, we have a voluntary process that every school and cost center participates in. It's called, it's called SPIA, which stands for Security and Privacy Impact Assessment. And the goal is to prompt organizations on a, like an annual basis to identify and improve uh, the security around applications and databases which house any kind of sensitive data. And the first few years of this, uh, really involved more coaxing uh, to get participation. But now everyone involved, and, and, and I, I can say confidently that we've got every single school and center now at Penn involved in this project, everyone involved understands that this is a tool that not only helps management uh, gain awareness, but, but by participating in this, it drives these sort of really important improvements in their organization and ultimately lowers their risk. You know, uh, David used this great term, uh, fear, uncertainty, doubt, or FUD. And I think, you know, uh, uh, without data, right, it's just another opinion. And, and, and if you've got strong data, if you can help people see and identify where the issues are, then it's really much easier to align resources towards them. David, how much security is enough in your educational institution type of setting? What are the standards and or benchmarks that you uh, look at as a holy grail and and work towards that? Or is there even one which you think once achieved would, would, would you say, call it done and take a two-weeks vacation? Yeah, a two-week vacation. That would be really (laughs) nice. I'm going to submit that to you for your approval. Um, Well, how much security is enough? That I can have a strong opinion on that, but I use a um, cross cross university model to to figure that out with me. I have strong relationships with our audit team, internal audit team, and external, and our legal group, and also our chief risk officer. And we, as a group, come up to say with how much security is enough, and we align that with the federal and state regulations that we must comply with, and we compare ourselves to different frameworks. Uh, I like to lean towards ISO 27000 series. I think it covers everything that we need. Um, We look a lot at NIST because we have a lot of federal grants and and federal money that comes in that we have to respond to, and we look at things holistically throughout all the models. Uh, We try to build extremely strong processes. We have a big, strong ITIL uh, working relationship here that we're, we're trying to go through, and the benchmarks and the standards need to meet the needs of the university, not just from the security perspective, but also from the audit, legal, and risk perspectives as well. 
30 seconds, Josh, for you. What is that you will do in terms of leadership and executive sponsorship and executional excellence in order for building a strong foundation for imparting education to everyone, starting from, say, higher ed and or to an elementary student? Well, you know, I don't. I actually, I don't think that there's anything unique about the information security sphere in this regard. I mean, if I understand the the question, you know, to be successful, information security people have to be able to explain security issues in a way that is meaningful to all levels of of their organization. Um, you know, obviously, inclu- including leadership. And that means having the right tools. Um, You know, that means having the right processes and the right people to be able to effectively describe um, our risks and and to be able to measure our risks. Um, You know, David just alluded to a process uh, that he has, and and I alluded earlier to a process that I have. Um, When we can do that, you know, the right decisions make themselves known. And and at Penn, I'm very fortunate that I can point to an example of a key process like this. It's probably because we're so decentralized. We've got a really strong uh, IT governance structure that includes information security governance, and it encourages this dialogue and debate uh, across all the university's stakeholders. And I, I think anything that encourages communication, anything that is encouraging discussion and prioritization by senior management is ultimately going to facilitate a strong and a secure organization. On behalf of the show and our listeners, I'd really like to thank you, David and Josh. It seems like uh, educational institution is something which is anyway having a mission to help build the next generation workforce and leaders. And folks like you are really trying to do the best job in securing the port. Thank you so much again. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And uh, listeners, if you have any questions or thoughts, please send us to views at CIOtalkradio.com. That is views at CIOtalkradio.com. Thank you again for listening to CIO Talk Radio. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Join Sunjal Gall next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific for another hour of CIO Talk Radio. CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by Citrix, offering go-to assist, remote support made easy.